Good day again, everyone. Keep that passage open. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way it shows us so clearly how we are saved. Uh, but we thank you also for the way it shows us so clearly how we should live in the light of that salvation. As we think about that tonight, we pray that you will use your word this evening uh, to help us to live lives worthy of the calling we've received as followers of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier in the year, you, I was going to say you may remember, but I know you remember, we took uh, five weeks to think about the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of uh, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the the church door in Wittenberg in Germany uh, and we have taken the opportunity to remember that, that thing that was so important in the history, not just of the world, but the history of the gospel going out to the world. Uh, and if you remember, one of the things we looked at, probably the key thing, was the truth that we are saved by grace alone. So it's always encouraging for me when people actually know the answer to the questions. By grace alone. Our salvation is a free gift given to us by God through Jesus and we need to be reminded of that every day Uh, and if there is ever a week where you are not reminded at church that you are saved by grace that your salvation is a gift of God then come and tell me we're doing it wrong if uh, if there is a week where you are not reminded of that Uh, so the problem is though is that we so quickly forget that and that's why we need to be reminded of it all the time because human beings all human beings, we naturally think that we have something to contribute to our salvation. So all human beings struggle with this problem where we think, yeah, 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 God saves me, but I contribute in some way. I help out in some way. My works have something to do with it. That is the problem of religion, basically. But no, I hope we've seen how important it is to remember that we are saved by grace and we receive that gift how? Through faith by grace through faith and we've been reminded of that over and over again already in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians so come back with me to Ephesians chapter 2 in fact you don't need to because I told you to learn this off by heart but you can go back there if you're just struggling a little bit look at chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 and we'll do it a bit like we do with kids in kids church and you can fill in the gaps for you are saved by through and this is not from Well done, some people up here. Not from yourselves, it is God's... There you go, that's Ephesians 2.8. They're not from works so that no one can boast. There you go, never forget that. But if on the one hand Christians make the mistake of thinking, yeah, I'm saved but it's got something to do with me, it's not grace alone. If that's sort of one side of the mistake... The mistake then many other Christians make, and we're all tempted to make, is to say, yeah, yeah, I understand that, I've been saved by grace, now it doesn't matter how I live my life. So sort of like, yep, I'm saved by Jesus, see you later, I'll see you in heaven. Sort of that sort of attitude. And it's like they forget to read past chapter 2 verse 9 and get to verse 10. Have a look at chapter 2 verse 10, which says, for we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Or as the reformers put it, they said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Uh, A true saving faith will always lead to a transformed or a changed life in the person who trusts in Jesus. 
Now, in many ways, the first three chapters of Ephesians that we finished last week have been convincing us of the first part of the truth. So the first three chapters of Ephesians have been convincing us of what God has done for us. That's been the big focus. It's been all about how God has saved us, God has redeemed us, God has made us alive in Christ Jesus, God has included us in his people. But now at chapter 4, there's a switch where he turns to the second part of the picture. If we're saved by grace through faith, that will mean something for us. And so chapter 4 says, if you've understood everything in chapters 1 to 3, what is it going to mean for how you now live your life as a follower of Jesus? So that is the question of chapters 4 to 6. How will we now live our lives? And he encapsulates the answer in verse 1. So come with me, chapter 4, verse 1. It's like the heading for the rest of the book. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner for the Lord... So therefore, because of what God has done for you, because of what you've already seen in chapters 1 to 3, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Walk worthy of your calling. When he says walk, he means how you live your life, the decisions you make, the things you do day by day, how you conduct yourself. And his point is, God has called you to be his child. God has called you to be a new creation. God has called you to be a new person in Christ Jesus. If that is what you are, then live like it. You're no longer dead in your sin, so don't live like you're dead in your sin. Live like you're alive in Jesus. You're no longer separated from God, so now live like you're no longer separated from God. And that is the Christian ethic in a nutshell. If you ever want to to know what the Bible says about why you should do good works, it is be what you are. Act like what you actually are, which is a new person in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a rebel from God. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You're no longer separated from God. So you mustn't live like you are. Instead, live like what you are now, which is a child of God. Live a life worthy of your calling. So that's the summary. But what does that look like in the practicalities of life? Well, he's going to spend the next three chapters showing us so we've got some a lot of practical stuff over the next few weeks but interestingly he goes on to talk about all sorts of other things like how you act in, in your work how you act in your family all sorts of things but he starts with what it means for the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ the first thing he wants to tell us about living a life worthy of our calling is how we should treat our brothers and sisters in Christ the fellow members of the church And the big theme is summed up in one word. Did you get it as we read it? The big theme is unity. Unity or oneness, if you like. So look from verse 2. He says, walk worthy of the calling you've received. Then verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us. Now I'm going to come to those specific character traits in verse 2 in a little moment. But do you see there, what does Jesus want us to do? What is his first call on us as people living a life worthy of our calling? A massive part of it is living in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The unity of God's people is so important. There's a few things we need to see here. Firstly, he is talking especially about the unity of what we would call the local church. 
When the New Testament talks about church, it's not thinking of denominations and institutions. It's thinking about the gathering of Christians at a particular location. So when it's talking, when we read this, people often jump to, yeah, that's what bishops should do, and that's what archbishops should do, and that's what the Anglican church should do, and that's what whatever other denomination you think of. And this has an impact on what you might call denominational unity and the institutional church. It should drive us to want to work in partnership with other Christians who believe the gospel. But that's not the main point. Paul is talking about how we conduct ourselves in the church we are a part of the church where God has placed us. He's talking about the people in the specific place we are who follow Jesus. And he's saying, as much as you are able, you in your church family, you diligently keep the unity of your church. Keep unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Second thing to notice is it's not unity at all costs. So do you notice that it's the unity of the spirit and the peace that binds us or down at verse 13 jump down there it's unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son see the only unity Paul wants us to have is unity built around our common faith in Christ see this passage has been abused to say over the years you must maintain unity at all costs even if they don't believe the bible anymore it's more important that the church be unified than that the church actually preach the scriptures that's not the case so back at the time of the reformation when martin luther was saying hang on the church of my day is not preaching the gospel there would have been people who misquoted ephesians 4 at him and said you shouldn't be doing what you're doing you're breaking the unity of the church but he would have said no no no, no. i break it reluctantly i don't want to i'm not doing this for my own benefit But I'm doing it because in the end we have to break unity when you are denying the truth of God's word or when you are wanting to call sin godliness which leads to my third point do you notice it's not create unity do you see that there it's not diligently do whatever you can to make your church unified it's keep the unity you already have in Christ see this is the thing you are a part of the church if you believe in Jesus you don't have to make yourself part of the church if you believe in Jesus you are part of the church and there is only one church in the true sense and that's the point of all those ones in verses four to six there flick through them he's saying look God has made one body so there isn't a church for you and a church for him that's not the way it is there's only one body and there's only one spirit who lives in believers there's only one hope that we all look forward to one gospel and there's only one Jesus who we worship there's one faith that is one body of faith that we believe in there's one baptism that is you're not baptized into something different to what i'm baptized into and of course that's all because there is only one god who is the father of all and so his point is if you trust in jesus if we trust in jesus we are unified that's just the spiritual reality we are one see that's because the church is a family and it's like your normal family you might be in a really sad situation where you don't talk to your brother or your sister but you can't change the fact that they're still part of your family that's just the reality that you're born of the same mother well in the same way we are unified the question is will we act like it we are one church the question is will we work really hard to show that in practice see the challenge is to show our spiritual reality in the way we treat one another 
Which brings us to the four key character traits that help us keep unity. Look there in verse 2. The first is humility. What is humility? Humility is not low self-esteem. Often people with low self-esteem, that comes from pride because we compare ourselves to other people. It's not saying, oh, I'm hopeless and they're much better than me. Humility is to put yourself lower than other people in your own mind. Humility is consciously considering other people and their needs as more important than you and your needs. Humility, before the time of Jesus, was actually universally accepted in every culture in the world as a negative thing. Humility was a way of saying something negative about it. They're very humble. It means they're hopeless. They're weak. It's a negative trait. But Christianity made it a positive trait. Because Jesus said, no, 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 it is not weak to put other people and their needs above yourself. It's actually the strongest thing you can do. It's the most Christ-like characteristic, humility. And it goes with the next one, look there, gentleness, or better, meekness. It's the word from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Meekness means, I don't demand my rights. Meekness means, I look out for other people. And again, our world thinks meekness is just being weak being a doormat but what you see in Jesus is that it's the truly strong person who's willing to voluntarily give up their rights for the good of other people and already I hope you're seeing that this is how we keep the unity of the spirit by being people who put other people in front of ourselves who put other people's needs in front of our own now let's move on the next one there is patience It really should read, except there's no English word that captures this, long-sufferingness. So I've just made that word up like William Shakespeare. But that's what it means. It means long-sufferingness. And what it's talking about is putting up with rubbish from other people. That's what the word means. It means putting up with other people hurting us and other people aggravating us. I always think, when I think of who do I know who is long-suffering... I think of many mothers dealing with teenage children. I think of my mother dealing with me when I was a teenager. She was long-suffering. Interestingly, it's the word that the Old Testament uses to describe God dealing with humanity in the Old Testament. God was long-suffering, putting up with all humanity's rubbish without judging it for so long. See, the world says if someone annoys you or if someone wrongs you, what does the world say to do? Have nothing to do with them. Ignore them. Or take revenge on them and do the same back to them. But walking worthy of our calling means being patient and long-suffering. And when you put that all together, it means, the next thing there, accepting one another in love. That's what the person who knows Jesus looks like. That's how they work at maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. By putting one another first, by putting other people first, by bearing with one another, even when they don't put us first, it's really just following the example of Jesus, isn't it? That's what he's calling on us to do. So do you want to walk worthy of your calling? I pray you do. That's the first question. Do you want to walk worthy of your calling? Well, if you do, then cultivate humility rather than pride and cultivate meekness rather than standing on your rights and cultivate patience rather than being quick-tempered. Work at accepting others in love and make every effort to keep the unity we have in Christ. Let's move on. Come with me to verse 7 now. 
Because sometimes people think unity means everyone has to be the same. And Paul wants us to see here that unity does not mean we're all exactly the same. It doesn't mean uniformity. See, this is what is so miraculous about the church. And we've seen this already, haven't we? We've seen how the church brings us together by a common faith in Christ across all sorts of cultural boundaries. That's what we've been talking about in chapters 1 to 3. It brings together Jew and Gentile, people from every race. You see, our world says, yeah, we can achieve unity, but the only way we can do that is by conformity. So schools, I remember when I was at school and they loved the, the idea that we are unified and we're all on it together. So you all have to wear the same uniform and you all have to say the same chants at the sporting arena or whatever it is. And it's a false unity. It's just saying, we don't accept you for who you are, but if you come and fit into our box, then we'll be unified. So I'll be unified with you if you're exactly like me. So our world breaks off into tribes, doesn't it? Different groups who all dress the same and who all think the same. But the wonder of the church is there is a unity based on our common faith, but there is also a diversity. As I say, we've seen it already, diversity of ethnic background, diversity of culture. But now what Paul wants to talk to us about, the diversity we bring because of our different gifts and our different skills and that sort of thing. So the next part of walking worthy of our calling is using your particular gifts to build the body of Christ. So he starts there in verse 7. He says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. And he's not talking about the grace of salvation there, uh, that saving grace, which we all receive equally, as we've seen back in chapter 2. But what it's saying is Jesus gives us all different gifts, what I call serving grace. And this is so important The point he's making is Jesus has given every person, do you see that there? Grace was given to each one of us. Jesus has given every person gifts they can use to build the body of Christ. So no one can say, I've got nothing to offer. No one can say that. And no one can equally say, I don't need you and what you've got to offer in the people of God. And so in verse 8 there, Paul quotes Psalm 68, which we read the first half of before. That was a psalm in the Old Testament about God coming to his temple in Jerusalem and leading all the people who he's been in victory over and and all of this. And it's talking about how he ascended to take his place in the temple in Jerusalem. And Paul says, actually, that's pointing forward to Jesus, who ascended up to heaven. Of course, he had to descend first. It's a bit tricky, those verses. You probably looked at them in your gospel team. But his point is, Jesus first descended to earth. That's talking about when he came to earth and lived amongst us and then died for our sins. After that, he ascended on high. And now the risen Jesus, who has ascended to heaven, distributes gifts to his people through his Holy Spirit. And first, the first gift or the first types of gifts that Jesus gives are there in verse 11 look at verse 11 and what they are is people who lead the church so look at verse 11 it says and he Jesus personally gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists some pastors and teachers now the apostles and the prophets don't look for them in the modern church they were at that specific time they were the foundation gift you remember that back in chapter 2 verse 20 we were built on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles and the prophets so where do you receive that gift from jesus now 
the gift of the apostles and prophets. Where do you receive that gift now? Matt held his Bible up. That's exactly right. That's where you receive the gift of the apostles and the prophets, uh, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. But the next two are ongoing gifts to every generation of the church. And so the first is evangelists. Now, every Christian is called to evangelize. Every Christian is called to share the gospel, but God gifts certain people particularly for that role. People who the church send out to preach the gospel to people who would not otherwise hear it, to to start new churches. That's the gift of the evangelist. But then the next gift is pastors and teachers. What is who are the pastors and teachers? I'm a pastor and teacher. I like this passage because it allows me to say to you, I am God's gift to you (laughs) in a humble way. And you might be thinking, gee, I wish God had given me a better gift. But anyway, uh, but who are our pastors and teachers? It's people like me or Troy or Kevin, people who are set aside to care for the flock by teaching the word, by encouraging, by challenging, by sometimes rebuking and, and always teaching the scriptures. Why does though, looking at Ephesians 4, why does Jesus give us these people? Why does Jesus give us the evangelists and the pastors and teachers? What is the role of these people? Now, you are all well taught, if I do say so myself. So you, you know the answer already and you're not as amazed by it as many others. But most Christians think God gives us the pastors and teachers to do the ministry. And so even our language and our way of speaking sort of says that where we set aside some people as ministers. Well, what does the word mean, minister? It means servants. So God sets aside some people who are servants. Actually, the Bible says we're all servants. And and so we talk about we come to a church service. And the idea is because that's where the servant serves me at church. But God's picture of the church is much more wonderful than that. See, a lot of people just assume Ephesians 4 verse 12 says, and he gave us these people to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. But it doesn't say that, does he? You see, his picture is much more wonderful than that. It's that we are a body made up of all different parts, but every part of the body has a role to play. And so the job of the pastor and teacher is not just to do the works of service, to do the ministry, though that's important. No, my job is, look at verse 12, what it actually says, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry. Who are the saints? A couple of people put up their hand. But who are the saints? You are. Every one of us is. Every Christian is a saint. So my job is to train and equip you to use the gifts that God has given you, that Jesus has given you, to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that service, that ministry, has a wonderful goal. Look at the end of verse 12. It's to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Isn't that a great picture? That's the role we all have to play, to build one another up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son and we together become like Christ. So we use whatever gifts God has given us to encourage one another, 
to spur one another on so that together do you see how many times he uses that word unity so that together we'll grow in our faith in Jesus so that together we will come to know Jesus better so that together we'll become more like Christ so why are you here why are you here why has Jesus brought you into his church his body so that you will be built up and encouraged yes so that you will persevere trusting Jesus that's important but more than that he has brought you here so that you can build up and encourage these people around you that's why you're here because the alternative the alternative to the church that is built up in unity and knowledge of Jesus Jesus the alternative is there in verse 14 look at verse 14 it says then we will no longer be and this is the alternative little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit sometimes Jesus says we should be like little children doesn't he and he's making the point we should be humble and trust him like a child but in another way we should not be like little children flighty unstable always changing our mind depending on who the last person was that spoke to us sadly I think this is describing far too many modern Christians I think far too many modern Christians could be described as being like little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind that comes their way they read one article on the internet or in the newspaper and suddenly their faith is thrown into turmoil and it's all up for grabs or one person raises a question about the Bible and suddenly it's all up for grabs and the problem is they have not built that firm foundation on the apostles and the prophets they have not built that firm foundation on the scriptures they haven't done that hard work to ground themselves in the faith so what that means is they are just tossed and turned by every wrong idea that comes up on their Facebook feed so you need to take responsibility for yourself and to take responsibility for making sure you are firmly grounded in the faith but do you see here how Paul doesn't actually speak to the immature Christian directly do you notice that see if I was writing Ephesians 4 and you should be thankful I'm not because I'm not inspired by God uh, I would say so you children in the faith grow up that's what I would say but Paul doesn't say that he says all of you speaks to us all he speaks to every member of the church and he says it's all of your job to make sure that your brothers and sisters in Christ here are not like little children tossed and turned by every new teaching it's your job to build one another up in maturity and we do that by verse 15 look with me but speaking the truth in love let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ from him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part if you ever want the picture of what the church is meant to be that is it there that is what Jesus wants from his church we are a body we are his body and Jesus is our head and every bit of the body is essential it'd be easy for the heart and the brain and the hands and the mouth to say well we're the important ones but that's why I love the way he says fitted and knit together 
by every supporting ligament. The spectacular mouth is not much good if the ligaments and muscles around it refuse to work. Well, in the same way, the upfront preacher is not much good if all the other essential works of service are not happening in the body of Christ. The healthy church is the one where every part of it plays its part, where every part of the body speaks the truth in love, uses their different talents, uses their different gifts to build one another up in Christ. And as I said, in particular, we do that by speaking the truth in love. That's the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. As we speak the truth in love to one another, we build the body. Now, every one of us will do that in different ways. And we'll do it in ways that reflect the ways Jesus has gifted us. So not everyone will preach sermons. But hopefully, as I preach sermons, I am speaking the truth in love and building up the body of Christ. But you do it after church. When you talk to one another about what you've learned from the scriptures, that's taking the opportunity to use your gifts to speak the truth in love. Or when you you meet a new friend and you say, can I read the scriptures with you? That is speaking the truth in love. Or when you ask someone after church, how are you going? And then you pray together and you encourage one another. That is speaking the truth in love. Or in your gospel team on a Wednesday night, even though you're not the leader, where you prepare the study so that you can come and not throw red herrings out there, but instead be helpful and encourage the other people who are a part of your group to understand the scriptures better. That's speaking the truth in love. Or when you notice that someone has stopped coming to church or to your gospel team and you give them a call and you share with them what you've learned recently from the scriptures, that's speaking the truth in love. You see, if the word of God is shared, however informally, that is building the body. And that is your calling. See, often we think, ah, well, my acts of service are formal things. And they're important. We need people to be leading gospel teams, to be teaching kids' church, to be uh, teaching scripture, to be doing all sorts of other things. That's speaking the truth in love. But the majority of it goes on informally when we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ by speaking the truth of God's word to one another and building one another up. So every one of us is a different part of the body. We'll all play different roles. But living a life worthy of our calling means playing our part in building us up together in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unity we have in Christ. And we pray that we would make every effort to keep that unity. Help us to be people who are humble rather than proud. Who are meek rather than stand up for our own rights. Help us to be people who bear with one another in love and are patient and long-suffering even when we are wronged. But Father, at the same time, we thank you for our diversity and we thank you for the way you have gifted each of us here differently. And we pray that we would all use the gifts you've given us to build one another up in Christ and especially help us to take every opportunity to speak the truth in love to one another so that we might together grow in the unity of our faith and in our knowledge of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.